Blog Talk Radio. to professionals. They're all just working hard for success. This show is to give those the opportunity to speak about their talents and what they're doing to succeed in their dreams. And now, here's your host, Sasha Marina. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show. I'm your host, Sasha Marina, and you're tuning into the Sasha Marina Show. So without further ado, I'm going to speak about today's guest. Her name is Margot Ray. Um, of course, that's her stage name, and that's what we all know her by. She's a very, very well-accomplished singer-songwriter with a long journey um, of many accomplishments and things that you know that she's gone through to get there. Um, I'd like to just talk to her personally and let everybody know, you know, who this person is if you don't know her already. She's a very interesting human being, and for what I know, a sweetheart, and for what I've seen. So without further ado, I'm going to have her on the line. Good morning, Margo. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Happy holidays. <laughs> Happy holidays. Thank you for having me on, Sasha. I appreciate it. Of course. My pleasure. 
So, Margo, let's start off by um, that first step in your journey. Why why a singer-songwriter? What was it about music that just wrapped around your heart and just made you take this whole journey into who you are now? I think sometimes us art forms um, choose you instead of you choosing them. And as long as I can remember, I've always sung uh, and publicly. So I started singing in public around the age of four. And I wrote my first song as a teenager and then continued, just continued from there. I, with the help of my parents, who didn't really have a whole lot of money, um, put me through, you know, classical training and competitions and, you know, but they made sure that it was something that I wanted. And and after I won my first competition, I thought, oh, this is actually quite serious. It's not just me singing and feeling the music. There's, there's all this technical you know, background and foundation that I need to learn to improve my craft. And, and uh, you know, <laughs> there's, um, there's beauty in always knowing what you want to do or feel like what you were put here to do. Um, there's also a lot of frustration, too, when, when things mm-hmm. take twists and turns. You know, when life takes its twists and turns, you're like, oh, you know, uh, sometimes you you see other people who are still trying to find what they want to do. You see almost that as a, as a, perhaps more of a blessing, but I, I love that I've always known in the long run. I love that I've always known. Okay. So you felt you, I mean, your parents obviously did the right thing. Like you said, um, I feel like this is very important that they made sure that that's what you really wanted, that that's what, you wanted to do as a child because a parent knows, you know, obviously they're by your side 24-7. They they know at the end of the day what kind of child you're going to grow up to be most of the time. So I think sometimes um, parents that are involved in this industry don't quite realize when the child's real, their heart's really in it and when it's not. And sometimes by the time they realize that it, it's too late that the child had never had any sort of interest, you know, especially in an industry like this. So I'm glad it was yeah, absolutely. Or just, or just, um, you know, my parents knew nothing of the industry. They just knew. Mm-hmm. They knew about musical training. The background mm-hmm. my mother had had some growing up as well, but certainly not about the industry itself. If anything, mm-hmm. that was kind of a big um, shocker <laughs> to them. <laughs> but they didn't really get involved in my career that way when it when it became professional. You know, they were supportive, but they did not, you know, get involved because they kind of felt like, well, we don't know what to do. So they certainly didn't become, you know, stage parents or anything like that. But I think also I'm the youngest of five, and so there wasn't really a whole lot of wiggle room mm-hmm. <laughs> as far as, you know, what was going on in the house. I don't know if they knew that that's mm-hmm. what I was going to be, but they certainly, you know, loved it. Once, once I started um, showing an interest, and and it and it, that the fact that it was making me happy, you know, it was making my heart sing. Um, the competitive side of it, they were always, they just always kind of let me do my own preparation and 
they, they, you know, they weren't like the typical parents that are like, you can't go out, you have to practice your violin or something like that. They really weren't. They just, they, I, I was very unsupervised <laughs> for some reason, and maybe that's what made me stronger, maybe very independent. So they give you a space, and that's, that's needed for any artist. When, um, let's, what, tell me more about your classical training. Because obviously that is your, um, you know, that is your base. As as an artist, you were trained classically. Do you feel that that has an influence, in, especially as who you are as an artist now, that has made you that much better? I think a strong foundation in whatever it is that you want to pursue is always a good idea, um, as mm-hmm. long as it keeps you creative. Uh, you know, it it certainly has reinforced, I mean, I still warm up vocally for shows the way I, the way I was taught. Um, it preserves mm-hmm. your voice, it preserves your craft, um, and it keeps, gives you stamina. Um, but I, I don't, I have seen other instances where, where artists have become kind of stifled by too much rigidity so I think if there's, you know, a balance in everything, in what you do, you know, people who are like unbelievably well-trained, who can read, sight-read cheap music and play it, you know, right off the page. I'm, I'm not one of those people, unfortunately. <laughs> but have they don't have, they, they wouldn't write something. They have all this training, but they wouldn't create something new. They, they, they only play what is put in front of them and they don't they don't write anything and it's like wow really and here I'm on the other side of it like everything mm-hmm. to me is creativity and I think gosh if I could just <laughs> if I would have paid more attention in like you know sight reading and playing the instruments um, that would have just been so much more easier I think but it's it's funny I think it's finding a balance um, I don't think it stopped me from being creative, but it's certainly, um, I would love to say I'm one of those people that, you know, plays lots of instruments. I, I play well enough to write, but I certainly, I always say I wouldn't hire myself to play. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't be okay. in my band if I was going to play, you know, just the piano or just the, the guitar. I do play hand percussion and I have a cajon, so I mean, there are things that interest me, for sure, but it's all for the sake of you know, just getting my hands on it and, and texture. I really admire people like, I don't know, Prince or Harry Connick Jr. or even that young um, country artist, Hunter Hayes. You know, he plays like six instruments or something and, and sings and writes. And that's really fantastic. So are you admitting to the fact that you're good enough to be good? with your instruments but not good enough to be great? No, I am good enough no. to be great, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, okay, but okay. again, it just takes, it takes the dedication and the time. And right now I'm really devoting a lot of my time to writing and playing my guitar. Okay. So I'm kind of tired of being okay at playing my guitar but and not wanting to play in front of, you know, my bandmates, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is actually the safest place to play. But right now, I—I I mean, I—I I know I feel it. Now, will I be like a guitar virtuoso? No, 
but I think it'll be it'll be really nice to finally have the freedom of just you know do a show or at least part of a show where it's just unplugged and it's me and my guitar. That's, so should uh, that's we something be I look forward to. So should we be expecting um, any acoustic singles soon or that's all just in the works? You know, you're just trying to practice that. I love doing unplugged uh, versions of things. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's really nice. It strips it away and it's just my voice. I do a lot of that anyway, but I'm not the one playing. It's me and my guitarist. Um, mm-hmm. But sure, anything possible, <laughs> Kasha. Let's go. Of course. I mean, might as well take that, you know, under consideration. You have a free writing time, a little practice time with you and your guitar. You never know. Your muse might be just there. Uh, as you're in your journey, um, you know, this uh, music career that, you know, that you just, like you said, it just chose you, I guess, at a very young age. What hardships did you face in the beginning? Was it perhaps being that you started so young? Did you feel that beginning at such a young age kind of um, part away of your childhood in any moment in time? Or did you just enjoy it so much that you just you didn't worry about the childhood responsibilities, I should say, or things? No, I think it gave me a really nice creative outlet. Um, I also didn't grow up in the age of, you know, where I would sing and someone would record it with their phone and then five <laughs> minutes later it's on, you know, it's on the web. I, yeah. You know, perhaps the, the first band I got in, I was, when I wrote my first song, I was 16, I got an all-female rock band called Debutante and I, or we called ourselves the Debs a lot too. But I also, I, you know, I, I often wonder, um, like, when you get in it, we were we were very good, and we, we toured quite a bit, and we even toured internationally. But, you know, it wasn't the age. It wasn't that kind of fast information, digital age. And I often wonder how, you know, how fast word would have gotten around had that been the case, you know. But then again, when everyone has access to the same technology, then you have that many more choices as well. So it's, I don't know if it makes you that much more popular. You know, it's kind of like screaming in the middle of Times Square, hey, I have a website. Everybody's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, no, I think it scared my parents maybe as a teenager. Like when we started doing shows outside of the city and then we'd pack up the the truck and with all of our equipment. But I was with, you know, my dear friends. I mean, a bunch of girls. I'm sure it scared scared the crap out of my dad. <laughs> but, again, he never said, you're not going and I'm going to go with you or something like that. You know, he was just like, okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, he had seen enough of my shows locally to where he was like, oh, well. You know, and we really did just that. You know, we went and we did our shows, and we didn't uh, we didn't uh, make too much trouble. You know, we just had a lot of fun. It's great being on stage with with your best friends. And I yeah. still do it now. You know, but the people in my band are are very very dear to me and have been uh, musicians in my band for many years. 
Okay. And from that uh, point, uh, when did you when did you decide to become a, a solo artist, or when did that point have to be made where you had to be become a solo artist? Well, I think I became one pretty much immediately. I mean, as soon as as soon as that band actually broke up, mm-hmm. um, I started. I discovered uh, jazz, you know, and I became a a jazz singer, and I had a, a jazz trio. I had many incarnations of my jazz band, and um, it was uh, it was a really wonderful, enriching education on stage. I I got a band together, and it was all guys my dad's age because I wanted to make sure that I was learning from a lot of old cats, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and it was it was great. It was fantastic. Um, all all the guys in my band had performed with a lot of the greats, so um, I was really quite fortunate to to be on stage and make all the mistakes on stage as terrifying as it is or learning learning truly what it is to take a solo and to improvise and to and to wrap yourself around a phrase, you know, all of those things. Um, so and then get that nod. You know, jazz musicians they they play for they're really playing for each other. <laughs> they're playing mm-hmm. for the people who are on stage. And everybody else is just fortunate enough to witness it. You know what I mean? That's kind of how jazz is. At least I think that's how Miles Davis explained it, for sure. And I would agree. How did you manage to um, combine your background uh, of Mexican heritage and at the same time combine it with, the at that, at that point in time, the pop and the American culture? As a solo wow, artist, that's a was really that good difficult? Question. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a really good question. Uh, I think you're the first person who's asked me that. That's really great. <laughs> you know, I moved to the United States when I was two. I had my second birthday in the United States. And okay. it, so we, you know, I, I, I grew up speaking English and Spanish at the insistence of my parents. But then when I would go back, I would go back every Christmas to Mexico and visit my cousins. And, of course, my cousins were like, oh, I wasn't, you know, Mexican enough for them. I was, you know, the American girl or this and that. And I used to think, and my mom was like, ignore them, you know, because you speak Spanish way better than they speak English. So you're at least (laughs) tackling two languages. You know what I mean? And um. And so I've always certainly was very proud of my heritage, and I grew up with a big, you know, Mexican family because eventually a lot of my dad's, you know, relatives ended up moving to the United States as well. So we grew up with a big family unit of aunts and uncles and cousins, et cetera, grandparents. But um, it was always interesting to straddle that line, you know, to ride that line of having this bicultural uh, upbringing when that at that time was not very popular. I love okay. that my mother insisted, you know, to my father. She said, "Why would we move from, you know, a relatively nice neighborhood in Mexico 
to move to a barrio in the United States. You know, so mm-hmm. we moved to an all-white neighborhood. You know, Mexican immigrants were not very common where we were living in Hearst, Texas. You know, it was an all-white mm-hmm. neighborhood, and and we never really saw ourselves as like all white, or I mean, not not white or something. It was just, it was just culturally very different. And it was also very Southern Baptist, and we, you know, my, we were being raised Catholic at the time. So uh, I don't think the neighbors knew what to do. <laughs> what was worse, <laughs> being Catholic or being <laughs> a Democrat or being Mexican? I mean, it was just like, whoa. And yeah. um, my parents, though, said something really, really valuable. They said, we're no longer just you know, the Raimundo family. We're, we are the Mexicans, and so we must dress right. And if you, if you dress shabbily, people are going to think all Mexicans dress shabbily. If you make bad grades, they're going to think that. If you, you know, if you think it's fun to go out with a friend and, and steal a candy bar, then Mexicans steal, you know. You're, you're like you're representing mm-hmm. your race. And, and I'm thinking, but I'm only five. <laughs> That's a lot of responsibility. No, but you know, I get what they're saying, and and it's so true. It's so very true. And they were like, "Well, don't ever let anyone treat you, you know, different." And honestly, it didn't even occur to me that someone would have treated me differently. It happened occasionally, and I, it was always the last thing I would consider. I'd be like, "Why is that person acting so weird?" And then be like, "Oh, oh, I see. You know, being." Mm-hmm. You know, socially discriminated against, but um, it just uh, that never. Bought, I mean, that's. I just thought they were dumb. I thought they were the ones that were dumb. So, it's incorporating that into my music really started happening. I think when I was 18, my father got me into a bunch of mariachi competitions because <laughs> he <laughs> wanted me to. He wanted me to learn the folkloric music, and I'm actually. I was in the throes of rock and roll and classical training. So, okay. but then when I started listening, really listening to, you know, the folkloric music and and listening to how beautifully it can be executed with a classical background, I was I was quite thrilled. And of course, you know, I made my dad proud and learned all these songs. And then I started incorporating a lot of Latin jazz rhythms and Afro-Cuban rhythms in my jazz. Um, sextet. I had, mm-hmm. I went from having a trio to a quartet to five, then to a sextet when I started incorporating a lot of Latin instruments. So okay. I really, um, I loved that. It was an unfolding of myself, and it wasn't something that someone had to beat over my head like, "Oh, you will play the accordion," or something. Yeah. Like that. Thank God they didn't say that. Um, but. Um, not that there's anything wrong with the accordion, but I'm just glad that my parents kind of, you know, they made certain demands musically, but they were usually pretty chill compared to uh, what could have been. What could have been. Which, uh, yeah, well, sometimes they were a little too chill. I, I kind of wish uh-huh. they didn't say make me play violin or something, you know. Yeah. But it is what it is, and I got great parents, and, you know, there was so... Sorry about that. There were so many people that I went to school with um, throughout the years who uh, were of Latin descent, and mm-hmm. they 
their parents didn't teach them how to speak their 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 native language, and I just always thought that was so sad. You know, I thought, why would you refuse knowledge because of fear of being ostracized or outcast? You know, they always say that it's said that the United States is a language graveyard, and it's very true. So many people don't teach the next generation because they're like, oh, well, I, you know, you know, I don't want them to, I want them to fit in, and it's like, well, but you can fit in. If anything, we're the one country that needs more languages under our belt because we're so big and spread out. So, and it's not only languages, it's culture. And I want to go back to, to pinpoint that, that one thing that you said, that, um, that, you know, that quote of your mother, that why are we going to come from Mexico from living in a good neighborhood to then coming to the United States, even though you're coming here to achieve our goals and live your dreams, but to then go live, downgrade yourself to living in a barrio to pretty much going to, back to Mexico, but in the United States. And I feel like people that come from other countries um, do this so much, and it still happens to this day. Um, I'm, I'm of Cuban, but both my parents are Cuban. I was born here in the United States. You know, they, they, both, they both migrated here at a, as young adults or whatever. But my mother, my parents worked so hard to not have to live in, in places where you know, everybody came to from other countries, but yet they come to the United States to stay living the same way and acting the same way and not really upgrading themselves and actually come here to achieve their goals and dreams. So that is so, I feel, I totally agree with that, with, with, with what your parents did, with what, and it doesn't, it doesn't take away from you being Mexican, you know, from you living no, in Mexican no, heritage exactly. and culture. Right. But you just, yeah. but I don't know. I just feel like so that's, many people that's don't have that opportunity. You know, they have an mm-hmm. infrastructure. Perhaps they know one other immigrant, and that's where they live. You know, you see that a lot in Los Angeles, like Koreatown. Mm-hmm. You know, they all, that's why it's called Koreatown. They all support each other, and they bring each other, you know, they, they immigrate uh, their, their family members into their mm-hmm. community, and then they just build this strong foundation of that Korean community or Chinese community or even Latin community, some families don't have a choice. My, my parents had a, a certain interesting set of circumstances that, that they were able to do that, but not without like three times the work. And you know, my parents, when they were able to finally buy a house, they paid it off in less than 15 years. I think they paid it off in eight years, and that was unheard of. I mean, people were getting 30-year mortgages. And that's what people did. They just paid for their house for 30 years. My my dad was like, no way. We're not going to do that. (laughs) They paid it off. I mean, they worked as many jobs as they could and paid it off in like, you know, seven to eight years or so. And and he remembers, he told me that, you know, the the look of shock on the person's face when he came to, you know, kind of settle the note. They were okay. astonished, like, whoa, we thought we were going to be getting this interest, you know, <laughs> for on this somewhat unsecured loan that my father was able to get, you know, and and uh, he just didn't want somebody having their thumb over him like that. But at the same time, even though we mm-hmm. were living in a community like that, they almost fought even harder for us to preserve our language, 
and our culture and the way we eat and the way we had parties, you know, <laughs> dancing, uh-huh. and there was always music. And so I don't think it was they were running away from anything, whereas some people may interpret it that way. They weren't. I think they were just like there needs to be more examples of this in these kind of communities. Of and and I'm, I'm really grateful to them. Uh, you know, they said you can speak Spanish you can speak English all day long at school, but when you're at home at the dinner table, you must speak in Spanish in complete sentences. Mm-hmm. And we were like, oh, my God, because it was so hard. You know, you don't want to suck at anything, and, and, and you know, you don't want to sound funny. And, and uh, it was no problem for my other siblings. My older siblings had a bigger challenge in that they had to learn English without an accent mm-hmm. in, like, four months <laughs> they were like you're starting school uh in the fall and you need to be able to speak english no accent four months so it was that too my 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 siblings don't who are older than me they don't have a latin accent so not none of us have an accent in english or in spanish when we speak those languages and i i think that i don't know how that happened in texas but it did and it's <laughs> pretty admirable <laughs> <laughs> And let me mention that what what she's mentioning, what Margot's mentioning right now, it's not because her parents were old school. I'm fairly young. I'm only 21, and my parents raised me the same exact way. I speak English and Spanish. When I speak English, you don't know where I'm from, okay? And I we still celebrate our Cuban culture, you know. We still, I'm, I can be Cuban. I can go into Cuba and be a Cuban. I'm in the United States, and I'm an American. That has nothing to do. So I just feel like I, I'm glad that we really that we stepped into the subject because it's never really spoken of, and it's something that I mean we're we're a country of immigrants, you know, and we're second. I mean I'm a second generation here, and I'm I consider myself an American, but it doesn't take away from the fact that I have that Cuban blood, and it doesn't take away from the fact that though you were you you were raised here at the age of two. You're, you still have that Mexican heritage. So I think that's, that's very great. I think that, that, just... that alone would make a fascinating <laughs> show because yeah. I've heard <laughs> stories like that on NPR uh, uh-huh. about more uh, like Filipino-based communities or Chinese-based communities where, where what ends up happening is the, the younger generation rejects all of the culture because they're mm-hmm. trying to assimilate. But then when they go back to visit, many do and some never have the you know, some never have the opportunity. But when some do, then they're a bit ostracized by their you know, by their family because that's back home because everybody's telling stories and laughing and and speaking in that language and the younger kids are totally left out. It's like, well, you never acted like you wanted to learn. I like that my parents insisted. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, you're going to learn this whether you feel goofy pronouncing these words or or not. You know, you can go back to speaking English, you know, as soon as dinner's over. So, yeah, I think you could do a whole show on that, Sasha. <laughs> no, I'm glad. And we, and we pretty much just said... So since we, we spoke about your background and we really got to know Margot, I, I really like doing this with, with all the artists and people I have on the show because I feel like sometimes when it's um, 
um, interviews are just based on, oh, what projects are you doing now, this and that. But I like to really tap into who you are as a person and just for everybody to know, you know, that we're all human beings at the end of the day, no matter, you know, how good we are in our craft and how much we succeeded doing so. Um, yeah. Before, let's, let's take these last couple of minutes and talking about uh, this holiday night, because it is the holiday season, and uh, we yeah. play your song this holiday night. Thank I, you. I, I, w- I want to know more about that. How did you go into, you know, I guess adapting yourself to just that Christmas spirit and, and coming up with, with these holiday songs? It's really funny how it happened. I I live most of the time up in the Santa Barbara area, which is about an hour and a half north of Los Angeles. It's just beautiful up here. And so I go on a lot of hikes. I, the minute I moved to California from Texas, I mm-hmm. I got rid of any gym membership because I <laughs> why would I go to the gym when I can when I can work out outside? I can hike. I can go running. I can you know go to the beach. I can practice yoga. So uh, my manager had said something. This was like in the in the summer when I wrote it. He said something like, "Oh, I think Rick Dees is going to come up with a Christmas album for kids, and he's looking for songwriters." And uh, and mm-hmm. I thought, "Oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, okay." And I guess because I immediately thought children and like a childlike openness um Mm. i say well yeah i'll totally uh write some songs for it or or whatever and then i never really heard another word about it and so but i just decided i would do it anyway i i one day i filled up my ipod with a bunch of you know classical music and mm-hmm. a couple of the Christmas classics that I like, like um, I love Harry Connick's version of uh, Sleigh Ride and a few other songs, but mostly classical music, actually, because I feel like that's the root of a lot of Christmas music. And I went hiking, and then okay. I kind of got this idea, and I came home, and I sat down at the piano, and I knew it was going to be a waltz, and I knew I wanted it to be in 3-4 time, and and I knew I wanted the last phrase of every uh, verse to be on this holiday night because I wanted it to be a holiday because it's universal. And so mm-hmm. I just started thinking about, you know, what I looked forward to as a kid whenever, you know, looking back on the best holiday moments, whether it was Thanksgiving or Easter or, or you know, just, or, or Christmas. You know, I Mm -hmm. I thought of all the things that I really looked forward to, any holiday. So I was really trying to describe a holiday the way a child sees it. Now, this song isn't, like, geared toward children. It just kind of, that was my, I write my songs like little movies. So that's kind of how Mm -hmm. I thought. And then um, I had already been writing with this guy named Barrett Uretzian, and I called him and I said, hey, I I wrote this holiday song. You want to help me finish the lyrics? He comes from a big Armenian family, and mm-hmm. so I thought we'd have a lot of interesting parallels in the way we grew up. And so we finished uh, we finished up the lyrics together the next day, and that's kind of how it happened. And it's taken off uh, for the last three seasons. You know, last year it was number four on the charts, and and right now it's still climbing. You know, it's um, 
I think it's number 13 and breaking into the top 10 as we speak. So I couldn't be more more thrilled that, you know, I wrote a song that people are starting to embrace as a as a classic. <laughs> I don't know. Well, okay. Sometimes you, 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 you get lucky, I guess. Like well, when you when you work, Marco, and you and you're so passionate about something, luck just has to come hand in hand because, you know, it's you earned it. <laughs> so, you know, congratulations on that, definitely. So we're reaching the end of our show. I think it's been an awesome uh, 30 minutes here speaking with you, getting to know who you are, for everybody to know who Margot Ray is and so forth. Um, I'd like to wish you continued luck and success in your career and life and happiness in this holiday season. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted um, I wanted to, everyone to know that my Twitter, my Twitter handle is at Margot Ray. And I know you mm-hmm. had it on your site. You had it on your site that way um, mm-hmm. a couple of days ago. But I think somehow it got on your site as at Ray for Anne, I don't know. Oh, I don't that's, know that's how. That's not my handle. You know, oh, let me tell you something. You know how sometimes Instagram, when you tag people on Instagram, then you sync it to Twitter, and then somehow it changes your Twitter handle? Well, I had tagged yes. you on, on, on Instagram, on Instagram like Margot Ray with no space, then I figured out that you had an underscore. But then when it when it went to Twitter, it it did that whole configuration somehow because you know they're so smart, <laughs> and that's how yeah, it I came about on my on my Twitter page. But yes, everyone. No, it's all it's at... all good. Yeah, no underscore. I'm just Margot Ray. Yeah. Okay. I was Perfect. lucky enough not to need that one. But thank you so much <laughs> for having me, and thank you for everything you do to promote artists and. And I love your story, too, about your Cuban background. That's really fascinating. And and uh, I'm a big fan of uh, of a, m- all things Cuban. <laughs> Ropa vieja. <laughs> oh, Ropa vieja, that's, that's all probably the food my, my favorite. The music yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I know, I've had well, to explain so that much. to people. <laughs> thank you so much. And I hope so. I don't know, having you back on the show one day. How's it going? I would love that. I'll have some new singles in the coming year, and I'd love to be back on. Perfect. So, Happy New Year, Margot, and Happy Holidays. You do the same. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Giving and kind, spread peace, love and joy. 